So what I'd like to do um, is to talk maybe for 15 minutes more around the question of enlightenment. I have pages of notes. Some of it's for later in the DPP, actually, because the last segment later on, a couple of years down the road or whenever it is that you have, um, is on Nibbana, as I recall. And so all these conversations. But um, this feels extremely important to keep um, open and not so much fill with views and opinions and information, but rather to make a respectful place to speak of something that's beautiful and, and uh, central and, and intimate to our, our lives and our spiritual life. Um, I could go down the list and answer your questions, of course, but... Um, there are two common um, descriptions of enlightenment in the Buddhist tradition, or two, two really common approaches to it, one of which I talked about right before the break, which sees enlightenment as a shift of identity. Um, and so when I went to practice in a Burmese monastery of Mahasi Sayadaw and did all this very precise noting of sitting and walking and breathing and hearing and thinking and touching and smelling and so forth until everything dissolved and dropped away and had all really very concentrated because I was on this retreat for 15, 16 months in silence. Um, and worked very hard. And so I had all these cool experiences, um, which gave a lot of faith in meditation. And then I went back to see Ajahn Chah, my main teacher, and told him about all these experiences. And he was appreciative of them. He understood them and said, that's great. You know, glad to hear over that. And, you know, I dissolved my body into light. Oh, very good, you know. And then when I was finished, he said, yeah, something else to let go of. That was it. That was his take on all those experiences because either you are where you are or you're living in some idea of yourself. And his notion of enlightenment, when Ajahn Chah went to see his great master, Ajahn Man, who was one of the forest masters most respected in the last 100, 150 years, he had this somewhat similar experience to mine. Um, he went to see Ajahn Man and said, I've been practicing in caves and in the forest, doing meditations on death, doing meditations of mindfulness, doing concentration practice and jhana practice, and had these samadhi experiences and told him, sort of reported his practice. And Ajahn Man said, you've missed the point. All those experiences are not the point. No experience is the point, nor the absence of experience. He said, what matters is who it is that's having these experiences. Turn your attention back to the knowing faculty, to consciousness itself, and make yourself sikibuto, which is translated as witness to what's true, witness to the truth. As if you're in a movie theater and there's a romance and a comedy and an action movie and a, you know, a documentary and all those things, when you get lost in them, you get really into that whole story. But then there's a moment where somebody, you know, drops their popcorn next to you or talks a little bit or they forgot to turn their cell phone off and you go, oh yeah, movie theater, right. We're not in the middle of, you know, whatever war that is or whatever romance. And there's the light coming from the projector and you realize it's all the play of light and shadow. To turn attention to consciousness, vinyana, to become awareness, to become the witness, is in the forest tradition and in Tibetan tradition, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, is to turn to mind essence. Jitdom is the language Ajahn Chah used, the original mind. It is consciousness that is unborn and undying. Um, and so the conditioned experiences always change, changing conditions of sounds and sights and smells and tastes and perceptions this is, and thoughts and feelings. This is the conditioned world. 
The unconditioned is that which knows. And pure awareness is neither tainted by nor affected any more by experience, by changing conditions, any more than the sky is affected by the clouds or airplanes or whatever that happens to pass through it. And so in this direction, enlightenment is the shift of identity from taking ourself to be the body, the feelings, the thoughts, the perceptions, just what we were talking about before the break, and instead resting in that which is deathless, timeless. Um, and there's, of course, more details to this because um, people will say, well, isn't consciousness one of the aggregates? Isn't it one of the five aggregates that make up body and mind? And doesn't that arise and pass with experience? How can you call it the unborn? But it turns out that consciousness has two different dimensions to it. And we'll talk about it more when we get further into the program. That in that way, consciousness is a lot like light. In fact, light and consciousness may be the same thing in a certain way. Um, and light can both be a wave and a particle. And when experienced in a certain way and measured in a certain way, light has photons and it's definitely little particles that, it, that change what they impact. But from another angle, light is a field of uh, interference patterns, of waves in space-time. And it has no beginning and it has no end. And it's not discrete. And consciousness is the same, depending how you look at it. So this is the unborn, not, not the momentary consciousness, but consciousness as a field of knowing that looks in the mirror and says, hmm, a little bit older, huh? But you don't feel older because that's not who you really are. Now, the other big description of enlightenment is the description of the end of defilements, the end of kilashas, the end of the torments, basically the, the elimination gradually or suddenly, depending on how it works, of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so an enlightened person is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is a little tougher one to observe from the outside. And even people that you're with, like, you know, I'll be with the Dalai Lama, who I respect as much as anybody I've ever met, and he'll say, mm, sometimes I get angry. But then I think, what's the use? You know? <laughs> and so, right, is he enlightened? I don't know, but he's something. He's really, I mean, and I've been with him quite a lot in all kinds of circumstances, and he's just an amazing consciousness. But there he says, well, sometimes I get angry. Or Nisargadat, who I was with in India, who said, yes, I'm sitting here and my meal didn't come on time and impatience comes, where's my meal? He said, it just has nothing to do with me. <laughs> you know, that's just impatience. Um, but this whole other definition is that it's gone, that it's uprooted, which might be so. Um, no more greed, no more hatred, no more delusion. And that it can happen in stages, gradually, less and less of it. Um, until the mind and heart, the, the mind stream is free of grasping or resisting experience in any way. Um, and this is a, a, another definition of enlightenment. And then in those traditions and where it's held, it's really, it's there in all these traditions. Um, but there are practices in order to release yourself from the grasping of greed and the aversion and hatred and delusion by more and more deep concentration and more and more deep mindfulness until you kind of break apart the roots. You go to the very roots of it and dismantle the identity that, ha that would be needing or greeting, greedy for anything. Um, and so it's another language that's used. And that's the more negative language. Enlightenment is the absence of greed. It's the absence of hatred. It's the absence of delusion. It's the absence of conflict. It's the absence of nirvana. It's the absence of suffering. It's a more negative language. Instead of saying it's the, the timeless, the clear, the unborn, the, the island, the refuge, the, those sort of positive languages, it's the non-greed, non-hatred, non non-hatred, non-delusion. 
Suzuki Roshi, when we realize the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. This is another description that the gateway to enlightenment is impermanence or death, as someone spoke of, seeing clearly, or suffering. It's the three characteristics. The Buddha taught the fire sermon and all these people were gathered around on Vulture's Peak and he said, what's burning? The eye is burning, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body is burning, the world is burning. With what is it burning? Greed, the sense of separateness, I need. Hatred, separateness, them, there, that. Delusions, the sense of separateness, the sense of self. And when we see the suffering that comes from this greed, hatred, and delusion, this body of fear, when we see it clearly, there's a release and abandoning. And then there arises liberation. And you read that text and you know all 1,250 monks and nuns who were seated there on Vulture's Peak had some form of enlightenment, just hearing those words. Pretty cool, you know. But in another way, we're all on Vulture's Peak. All you have to do is turn on CNN. I'm serious. And you see that the world is burning. You don't have to hear the Buddha tell you. You can look at it, you know, in your own cities um, and in the countries around the world and the behavior of human beings. And then if you really want to get personal, you look at your family, you know, or the families of others and so forth. And you see suffering. And then there comes in this viraga, this dispassion that says, no more is it worth it to cling. And what practice do I need to do? Mindfulness, compassion, over and over again until I look into the very roots of greed, hatred, and delusion and they get dissolved. It's another way of describing approach to enlightenment. Now what was helpful for me and what's been critical, and I, I guess I'll talk a little bit more about it and then then we'll do our practice, Um, is that if I think of enlightenment as a state, and clearly you hear that there are stages, that passage I read before, our break of the gradual deepening of enlightenment, but there are also satoris, there are these stream entry experiences, you know, where you're sitting with someone who dies and you see the world in another way, or here's Thich Nhat Hanh and you realize my mother never died. Or you look in the mirror, or you're Ajahn Chah talking to Ajahn Man, and he says, you missed the point. It's not about any experience. It's resting in awareness itself. And these experiences, these moments, can change your life. But what I found is that for it to be a genuine enlightenment experience, in some way or other, you become more free. You become free of self, of I, of mine, more free. You become free of fear and grasping. It's not that it may not come. Dalai Lama says, still get angry some. Think, what's the use? But there's a growing sense of the spaciousness of the heart, of less judgment, of less constriction, of less saying, this is who I am. And you know this, and it's really why we practice. And it's enormous treasure. And it turns out, that there isn't one enlightenment, best as I can tell. That it does much better to talk about it by adding an S to the word. You know, if you add an S to the word God, you're in a lot better shape in this planet. (laughs) It's true, because there's Yahweh, and there's Allah, and there's Jesus, you know, and Jesus, and Krishna, and Saraswati, you know, and... Kali, if you want to get down to it, right? Um, any nana. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in trouble. Well, who are you going to pray to, right? Um, but if you add an S to the word gods, then you don't have so many arguments. Because there are all these names to the ineffable, to the mystery, to the, the source of life. You could call it the creative principle of life that the Buddha didn't even put a name on, but then the Mahayanas might have called Dharmakaya or other things like that. And so it turns out that not only is it helpful to put an S, 
but that an image that may be useful for you is that of a jewel or a crystal. And when you look in a crystal, depending how you turn it, you get different colors light, different colors of light, because it will refract or break up the, the light. And so you get like a rainbow. You turn it one way and it's this violet color, and you turn it a little more and you get orange or yellow. You know what I'm talking about. Consciousness, it turns out, is the same. That in its, in its fundamental nature, when it's not identified with me and mine, it's pure, clear, timeless, and luminous. And people experience it all over the world. In every meditative tradition, there's the experience of light coming. You may or may not have it. It's not that everyone has it, but the Taoists or the shamans or the Christian mystics, some of them describe experiences of, the, of luminosity. And it's not a metaphor, it's an inner experience that comes to some people. But another experience of pure consciousness is love. That you come to a place where everything is just love. You are, it is all, it's like gravity. Everything is pulled back together to the original big flash or whatever that was. We were all together in the singularity. Um, and maybe love is just our attraction to come back together again, be a big family in that thing. But this, the consciousness is to know, knows that life is love. And then another turn of consciousness or another turn of the facet, and some of you have had this experience, and enlightenment it is experienced as perfection. That with all the misery and sorrow and conflict in the world, that it could be no other way. That for duality to exist, there has to be birth and death. There has to be gain and loss. There has to be aging and sickness. It's just part of what, if you want to do a world, it has to be this way because it changes. And there's some sense of the perfection of the dance of it with all its terror and magnificent beauty. And then you turn it again and enlightenment is peace. It, there is, we are surrounded by a vast stillness, as big as the galaxies, that's always here. And the little turning of the world and the little turning of our thoughts and so forth is surrounded by nothing but peace. It's what the world is. And you turn the crystal again, And consciousness becomes this profound compassion. And when the Buddha opened his eyes after his enlightenment and surveyed the world with the eyes of wisdom, he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, yet often doing the very things out of fear and grasping and confusion that created more suffering. And tears began to stream down his cheeks, as the story was told. When the tears touched the earth in one tradition, it said they sprung up as Tara, as the Bodhisattva, the feminine form of compassion. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, who says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself and others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. And so in the awakened heart, there's the seeing of the sorrow of the world, the tears. And it's not them, but it's us who are in you know, the slaughterhouse, both being killed and being the ones who are slaughtering. It's us who've been in the wars, you know, as the young soldiers drafted, or the young women whose children were torn from them. It's not somebody else, it's us. And consciousness knows this in some way, that we're part of this dance. So another dimension of, of awakening is oneness with all. And it's not a philosophy, it's an experience. And we all know it in our ways. And you turn the crystal, another facet, and it's emptiness. Not just no self, but the void, the pregnant darkness out of which all things are born. Because there's the forms of the world, 
But form is not different than emptiness. And emptiness gives birth to form. And there's a profound experience of the silence and the vastness and the fundamental emptiness, both of all phenomena, because they don't last. It's like a dream. What happened to yesterday? What happened to the first day of DPP? It is gone. It's back with the pharaohs of Egypt, right? And the dinosaurs and stuff. It is just gone. There's only this eternal present. And then stuff appears out of, comes trooping out of nowhere, as Rumi says, and then it vanishes. So it's empty in that way, but even more than that, beyond it, there's the emptiness before form. And so you start to recognize that people are using different languages and getting attached. My God is Allah and mine is Yahweh and so forth. And we're going to have a war about it. You know, and enlightenment is emptiness or enlightenment is fullness and oneness or enlightenment is love or it's compassion. And the answer is yes. Does this make sense to you? I'm giving you the short version. All right, we've got more to do. But what this does is it empowers you to look into and affirm your own experience that there's something that you know that's as true to you as your own name, truer. And then there are all these beautiful descriptions in Buddhist teachings, the seven factors of enlightenment, you know, or the, or the five spiritual powers, or the ten Bhumi stages, or the ten fetters that get released, the four stages of enlightenment, and so forth. They're all different descriptions. My favorite is the Brahma Viharas in many ways. What is the enlightened heart? It's love, it's compassion, it's joy, and it's perfect equanimity, perfect peace. That's, that's who we are when we're not caught in the small sense of self. How do you know when you get enlightened? As Master Dogen said, you may not know it, but you do know it. There's something in you that knows. Is it possible in this very life? Well, I don't know. It depends if you talk about the elimination of all moments of greed, hatred, and delusion. I'm looking for that. I don't know. But if you talk about it as the shift of identity, yeah, it is possible. No question. Is it a place? It's not a place. It's reality. It's what you are. The unconditioned. Am I enlightened? Moi? As Suzuki Roshi says, anyone who says they are enlightened has missed the point, right? <laughs> you know? But at the same time, um, I know enlightenment is true. Absolutely true. Absolutely. And it's, it's, then liberation is true. It is who we are. It's who I am. It's who you are. I know it. Do you need to believe in reincarnation? If you like. <laughs> You'll see. You'll see. You just wait. You'll see. You'll be surprised. You can not believe in it. It doesn't matter. It's fine. But you'll see. <laughs> Are there moments of enlightenment? Is there Theravada Mahayana? You start to hear all these different versions of it. How could the Buddha know? As Alice Walker said, when you, you know, run all around the house, in fact, when it happened, you just can't miss it. So I want us to do a practice. I could go on and on, you know, because what I would go on with, and I might at another time, would be to talk about what it's like to be with different teachers or traditions within our own Theravada tradition, Ajahn Chah or Mahasi Sada or Buddha Das or Ajahn Chamin or Deepama, what she was like and how what she spoke of enlightenment. And they all had different flavors. I mean, Deepama was partly, you know, this amazing meditation master, but she was as, also as interested in what you ate that day and were you being fed properly and had you written your mother to let her know where you were in India because she must be worrying about you and that was part of enlightenment. How's that? You know, when I've talked about the feminine version, you know, this was it. And it's so we could talk about all of that, but we have a practice to do.
And this practice will be an exploration in pairs. It will take about 10 or 12 minutes, and then we'll take a few minutes to digest it. Um, of being in the presence of another practitioner. Already you opened the gateway to realization in our, in our last little group. Um, and exploring the four Brahma Viharas by seeing them in the eyes and the heart of a person who is opposite to you, sitting next to you. Because sometimes it's easier, even though it's quite intimate in a way, sometimes it's easier to see things in another than it is to, ex- to see them and know them in ourselves. So without any words, staying silent, um, I'd like you in just a moment to turn to somebody seated near you for this 10-minute or 12-minute practice. And it's tough, I mean, but you came to DPP. It's too late. You signed up, (laughs) you know. Um, It's tough, but it's also quite revelatory. So go ahead, without any words, find a partner um, and sit opposite them. If you don't have a partner, put your hand up in the air and turn around in a circle. (laughs) Who else doesn't have a partner? Stand up and put your hand in the air. This is not dating, remember. This is just 10 minutes. You'll survive. Anyone else not have a partner? Okay, good. So here's the practice that we'll do in a moment. Let yourself sit quietly. If you want, you can even close your eyes just for a few seconds, remaining silent. And take a couple of deep breaths in yourself and exhale any tension that you may carry. And then when you're ready, let your eyes open and look into the eyes of the person opposite you. And if you feel any discomfort or an urge to laugh or look away, just note this embarrassment with patience, gentleness, and come back when you can to your partner's eyes. For you may never see this person in this way again and the opportunity to behold the uniqueness of this particular human being is given as a gift to you now. So we'll look in four ways. First, as you look into this person's eyes, behind these eyes, let yourself see another being with a beautiful spirit, an exquisite heart, and imagine them smiling in joy, and being at ease. welcoming others. And as you see the beauty behind these eyes, open your awareness to the gifts and strengths, the potential that's there. Behind these eyes are unmeasured reserves of courage and intelligence of patience, endurance, of wit and wisdom. There are gifts there which this person themselves may be unaware. Consider what they could bring forth from their being for this world if they believed in themselves so deeply. And let yourself become aware of your wish that this person be free from fear and confusion and be well. How if they were your own child, you would wish them well and safe from harm.
and wish that all that secret beauty within them could shine in the world, their true nature, their original goodness. And know that what you are experiencing now is the true nature of loving kindness, of well-wishing, seeing the beauty in another being behind all the veils and wishing them well. And now as you look and feel this metta, continue to look and take a deep breath or two and let the metta dissolve with your breath so that you can look anew and see even more deeply into these eyes. And now as you look anew, more deeply in these eyes, let yourself become aware of the measure of sorrows that are there. Behind these eyes, the burdens carried, the unknown pain, the secrets they bear. There are sorrows accumulated in this life as in all human lives that you can only guess at. If you look deeply and see the measure of sorrows, there are disappointments and failures, losses and loneliness. Hurts beyond the telling. Let yourself open to know this pain, to the hurts this person may never have told another being. You cannot fix their pain, but you can be with it, with a spirit of courage. You can let yourself be simply present with their measure of sorrows. And as you do, imagined, imagine them as a child, frightened or hurt, perhaps your own child. What would your natural response be to the measure of sorrows in their life. Feel how you might want to reach out, to comfort, to hold. And know that what you are experiencing now is the great heart of compassion. It is essential for the healing of the world. And as you look, continue to look in these eyes, take a couple of deep breaths again, gently, and release the compassion, and release what you've seen, so you can look for the third of these four times anew, and see again deeply. And having taken a deep breath or two, releasing the compassion, look again behind these eyes to the mystery of joy. For not only are there tears and sorrow, but let yourself look and see that in this human being is also the spirit of life and joy. And when you see deeply, let yourself imagine or envision their happiest moments, their best adventure as a young child. You can picture it. 
the playfulness behind these eyes, the dances, and feel how your joy opens in seeing theirs. How beautiful it would be to share together work on some common project, laughing, taking risks, conspiring, supporting. And see in these eyes the ability to laugh in triumph, the creative fountain born in them. And how their best adventure as a young child is still in them. The child of the spirit in them never dies. And they could have such an adventure this very day. And know that what you are opening to now, the pleasure in one another's joy, is mudita itself is the joy and happiness and the joy of another. Sense it, open to it, rest in it. And when you're ready, release the joy into the wind and the space and take a couple more deep breaths for the last time, one more look even more deeply into these eyes, the very last. And settle your awareness now so that it drops deep like a stone in water and you look behind these eyes to the deepest web of consciousness and life itself manifesting through this being. And look to see behind these eyes this consciousness in which you've taken birth that weaves all life. And see this being before you as if seeing the face of one who has been young and old, who has been awake and asleep or lost, who has been your son or daughter at another time and place, who has been your mother or father, who has been your friend, your enemy, your partner, your student, your teacher. And now you meet on the brink of time, eternity, and feel the web of life itself, the vast net of consciousness that weaves through and connects you. And rest in this knowing, in this great peace. See who you really are. And just as you look deeply in these eyes to see everything, Ask yourself, who am I who is seeing? Not this body or thoughts, not the small self of personality, but who am I really? And rest in the knowing that is timeless, ever-present, awake. And when you're ready now, let your eyes close for half a minute. 
and open them again. Pay respects to your partner. And of course, if you'd like to talk to your partner a bit more, right when, when we're done, you're welcome to do that. If there's feels like something more important that you haven't had time to say. But before we end, um, let yourself come back. This was a practice of working with the four Brahma Viharas. And it's another way of answering that question, is enlightenment possible, is it visible, is it, or is it, you know, for old, old guys in the caves in the Himalayas? This was 12 minutes that you did, you know. People have raised their hand and said, I was married for 26 years and I never got this close to my, you know. <laughs> um, but you do know, and the Buddha said, if liberation were not possible for you, I would not teach it. But because it is possible to know who you are, to see with the eyes of wisdom, to to be in the world with the great heart of compassion because it is possible for you, then we offer these t- trainings and teachings and practices that you might both open to this, as we were talking about earlier, these different dimensions of awakening or enlightenment, and that you might embody them, stabilize them, mature them in yourself. So you do know and you could see it. Let's just take a few minutes before we have our announcements and end um, with the microphone. Anyone who had any interesting experiences in doing that? I should say while the mic goes out that it, you know, it also can be a little embarrassing or hard at times. Um, you get very shy uh, at certain moments. Um, and it's just a practice. So you don't want to use practices to judge yourself. I mean, you could. Yes, go ahead. But you've done that long enough. I mean, here we're trying to do something different. So we'll do... 20 different practices over the course of this week and, you know, 100 over the training, each of which are really meant to free your heart. So don't use them in ways to judge yourself. If it worked, great. And if beautiful. And if it didn't, there'll be, you know, three more tomorrow. So please, Anushka. My name's Marcia. I just was impressed with the amount of trust that there was with Lisa um, and how deeply we could go each round um, and explore in each other's eyes. Mm. How was it? It was lovely. Yeah. It was everything. It was scary, and it was beautiful, and it was playful and adventurous. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Another? I was struck by how beautiful the person was that I was being with and the beauty of their eyes and the beauty of their face and the beauty of their being and I said to him nothing personal but it could have been anybody (laughs) 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 and it's true I mean it's like we we are so beautiful when we when we look that deeply yeah (laughs) it's really something isn't it thank you that's fabulous Thomas Merton calls it the secret beauty of every being. Yeah. My name is Mike. Um, I was just really surprised. Um, like right when we started uh, and I looked into Jocelyn's eyes, I, I just felt this well of emotion and um, started tearing up. And I think the question I asked myself was, or at least the, the connection I made was that, you know, I think this is probably why I don't look as many people in the eye. Because yeah. um, it's scary to feel that for someone I don't know. Um, and so I think, you know, I think I hold it back. Yeah, thank you. And there was a, there's a beautiful story that, again, a Ramdas story. He led for one year or two years, a, a group on service in Oakland in a big auditorium there. People would meet every week and he would do talks. And he was talking about relationship to people on the street and homeless people and whether you looked at them or not. 
and one woman raised her hand after a few of the classes of conversation. She said, I realize that there's this man that sits near the subway where I go to work every day. And for a year, I've been putting money in his cup, and I sort of feel some connection. But I never let myself look in his eyes. And she said, and now I know why. Because I was afraid if I did, tomorrow he'd be, he'd be sleeping on the couch in my living room. And I didn't really know what to do with that. So, yeah. Thank you. I was with a very willing partner, and so it seemed like I was seeing the whole evolution of humanity in one face. The willingness, it seemed also, I understood reincarnation, because we were cycling, <laughs> cycling through all this history together. And when you suggested that I see her as the enemy, it showed me that when I have seen others as enemies, it was impermanent. And the heart is greater than that. Thank you. Thank you. That's enough. That's good. Whew. Twelve minutes. So it's really important and beautiful to know. And again, people didn't raise their hand who had a lot of trouble with it, but I know some of you are there too. But just to have a sense from these conversations and practices and teachings that awakening is for you. It's not something just to read about or study about, but it's an invitation to know who you are, to see this mystery, to see through the eyes of liberation. I mean, that was liberating what you saw. That was a moment of, of beautiful liberation. Um, and uh, that this is, as the Buddha said, this is why we practice the Dharma, so that you remember this. So... Thank you so, so much. And I know we have some announcements to uh, do. Anushka, please. Yeah, thank you, Jack. So first I just want to say hi, that I'm glad to be here. Um, I did have some householder dukkha of having to deal with some things in my home, but um, I'm glad that I got to uh, get back here again. So in um, trying to catch up also, um, we're having some individual meetings with people here. So I'm going to try and meet with some people this evening after tea, and I posted the list um, on the backboard there, but I'll just read the names too. So 6.30, Nancy McMahon, uh, 6.45, Robert Rossoff, 7 o'clock, Iris Brilliant, and 7.15, Susan St. Michael. And my uh, place is 1C, which is just across the way there. And then there's a couple more people that I put down for the morning tomorrow, so 8, John, Jen Rosamond, 8.15, Martha Ruff, Ruffner, Ruffman, 8.30, Michael Stroud, and 8.45, Shuli Goodman. So you could check those up there. Other teachers will also put up ones, too, for different times for tomorrow. Also. And today. Okay, just check the board. <laughs> um, second announcement is, so there's... Um, uh, handout on the back chair there that's um, the precepts so that's for a couple reasons one is that um, you've done the chanting of the precepts here already and so now you have it in printed form um, also as one of the sessions during the DPP on Friday morning we're going to go into the precepts in general and then also look at one of the precepts in particular the first one um, which is what the second part of the sheet is so make sure you have that by Friday also it also is relevant for today because today is Vesak, the Buddha's birthday and Enlightenment Day and passing day. And so uh, we're going to celebrate the Buddha's birthday here in the way that he might like, which is to light the candles of presence in ourselves. So uh, actually at the end of the last uh, session this evening, which might be like nine or something, um, there's going to be a little break and then opportunity for people who would like to to come back here and actually pr practice in silence. So practice sitting and walking. And um, Ruby's going to be here to lead that. And we'll also chant the precepts and um, do a chanting. Is it the sharing of blessings? Maybe? 
Uh, evening, okay, the evening puja kind of thing, yeah. So chanting and then a chance to practice uh, till midnight, uh, possibly longer if you're ready to keep it up through the vigil of the night. But um, So that's Buddha's birthday celebration for those who wish to come. Happy birthday, Buddha. Yeah. And it's, sort of, oh, it's free form. You can just come for as long as you like. Yeah, so you, you can come and then if you feel like you have to go to bed, you could go also. You don't have to commit for the three hours. Uh, um, also around uh, the next meal, so yeah, this was a very uh, juicy and fruitful session, so we thought it might be good for us all to digest that uh, in ourselves, so alleviate you from social pressure uh, to have a silent tea um, for the next meal. Um, and also just a reminder that the dorms will be kept silent during uh, all of the times, just so if people need to take refuge there to be quiet and uh, things to allow that. Total silence for tea, in, inside and outside. Physically. <laughs> Physically. <laughs> so. Referring to the dining hall, actually, but also, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, Anything else? And then... Um, if there's something that felt unfinished with your partner before you leave the room, you can talk to them for another couple of minutes. Uh, and then I'll leave you with a little practice that you can play with over the course of this week or your lifetime. And that is, um, it's really a, quite a fruitful practice. And that is to pretend that you're enlightened. And see what happens if you do it for a while. It's a serious practice. So enjoy. Thank you.